fantasy Caught in a landslide No escape from reality Open your eyes Look up to the skies and see I'm just a Go little high, little low. Anyway, the wind blows, doesn't really matter to me. To me, Mama just killed a man, put a gun against his head.
Welcome uh, to a Bold Scientist Under the Shower, uh, the show broadcast every month and sometime, sometimes the third Monday of the month on uh, Radio Onda uh, Italiana hosted by Stats FM. Tonight uh, we have a very special and uh, definitely new, uh, you, you will understand in a while why I use this new word, New guest, uh, Davide uh, Bavato. Uh, I met Davide uh, a few months uh, ago during a meeting actually with the Italian ambassador in the Netherlands. And uh, he presented this research on uh, innovation. What is uh, an innovative idea? Uh, who can be considered uh, as an innovator? And uh, what uh, can we and the policy makers do to promote uh, innovation? But the real one, not just what is wrongly perceived as such. And I'm sure that tonight uh, Davide will uh, shed light on uh, uh, all those uh, aspects. Hi Davide, how are you doing? Hi Francesco, all good. Thanks for inviting me. It's yeah. uh, really a pleasure and Thank it's you. quite fun to be here. Thank you. Actually, uh, I didn't uh, say, but you really impressed me uh, during uh, the presentation, how clear you were and uh, how charismatic, actually. Uh, you were in front I of always, all those... Uh, Please. I've always learned to lower the expectations at the beginning, so now you're really setting the stage <laughs> for a, a dramatic presentation from my side. So, um, <laughs> but uh, I mean... But thanks, thanks for the words. Okay, but, I mean, I'm, not, I'm actually not saying what is, re what is the real diamond, so I'm also lowering what the... <laughs> So I'm increasing up again. Okay, Davide. Um, so uh, you actually gonna uh, told us uh, about uh, what is an innovative idea tonight. Uh, but first of all, uh, I would like to know uh, what, the, because you are a researcher, actually you recently got a PhD. Uh, yep. So you are, you belong to uh, our family of the bold scientists under the shower. Um, so where are you now? What is your what have been your career so far, and uh, what can you tell us about uh, yourself? I well, I, it feels like I've never left university. Really, I've been studying international business for some years in Venice and in Stockholm. Afterwards. I took a small break to try to start my own company and work in a startup. Uh, of course, it didn't work out. It didn't become a billionaire. So that's why I became a teacher and a lecturer in innovation and entrepreneurship. I mean, you, you, you would have become... A quote about it as well. You would have become boring as a millionaire, David, I'm sure. So because that is it, true. That is true. Right? I, 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 I can tell that the life of a researcher is... Uh, never boring. Exactly. Sure. And uh, I've done my PhD management at Erasmus University. There is a very nice center for innovation there. Uh, and uh, now I'm doing uh, and continuing my research in entrepreneurship, innovation, and creativity at EPFL, which is the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Lausanne. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to the next phases of my life as a as a management scientist, although it's a bit of a, a interface also with other disciplines. So it's a, let's say that it's a pretty straightforward journey. I never left the business schools so far. Okay, thank you very much for this uh, nice and interesting introduction. Uh, as I ask to all my guests, um, I would like to know whether being a researcher or being uh, a researcher in innovation has been always your childhood dream. 
Oh, probably. I don't think so. I mean, I guess not, but probably I, I'm wrong. I I think that I have one story of a of a person that I think was born a scientist, and I think it's the son of uh, Piero Angela, Alberto Angela. So there is this fantastic uh, uh, scientist that became famous for uh, making uh, science accessible to the Italian public. I loved, I mean, as a kid, we were watching every episode of their TV show. It was fantastic. Like from the mated, mating behavior of lions in the savanna, to understanding, you know, how dinosaurs were, went extinct with this, you know, for the, for the time they were recording, they were using these crazy special effects with a uh, TV presenter in the actual, you know, 60 million ago in the jungle with the dinosaurs around him. So I was, I'm passionate about that show, but if I had to think at that time about my dream, I think uh, uh, I really wanted to fly. I really thought that I could become a pilot, but of course I'm half blind, so that doesn't work. And I, I'm, I am a, a very boring reader of fantasy stuff. So I, for a time I thought I could just live in those books or write one of them. But uh, if I have to find a moment where I understood that to become a scientist was much later and I think I became extremely passionate about uh, developmental economics. There are these beautiful studies that have been done on how to help people to adopt innovation. So there were these fantastic research studies done why, for example, people don't uh, uh, use uh, nets against malaria, uh, although they are subsidized, although they are given for free and they are not being successful in solving the big issues of society. So I became at that time, really, really interested in understanding why people react differently to innovation. I think that was my moment. I became really passionate about science. Uh, and now it's broadening up. So I, science is not only what I do during my you know, working hours, but I really love to read any type of science right now. Oh, nice. And you also uh, married a scientist, right? Oh my God. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> I am. I'm really, really so, lucky. Literally, about science. Uh, we don't talk about science at the dinner table. That's that's for sure. That's uh, nice. Sometimes. But, uh, yeah, I got lucky that I found a job and love. And uh, nice, beautiful. And, yeah, and Rotterdam will always be in my heart. Ah, oh, beautiful. Okay, so uh, we we already uh, said the word innovation uh, uh, several times, but uh, uh, probably uh, our audience and listeners uh, are uh, uh, probably they they think they know what innovation is, what the, an innovative idea is, but you I, I I learned from you that there are a lot of misunderstandings uh, because what is exactly uh, according to science, an innovative idea. Uh, and I mean, on a margin, I also would ask, like to ask you, because you have chosen this, this beautiful uh, piece uh, that I um, that introduced our show, that it was uh, Bohemian Rhapsody from Queen. Uh, and I mean, also, I would like to know why do you think this, this, this song is innovative and uh, whether it does fit your and the scientific definition of the innovative idea. So just to start, I am not a person that brings a lot of clarity. I bring usually confusion with my answers. And my answer will be that there are different definitions of what innovation is. And if I have to summarize it from my perspective, we can have two different camps, two different perspectives. 
one perspective is that novelty is something that is unique, different from anything that occurred in the past, that is unexpected and surprising, but is that some of it is grounded in facts. So if we have to take, for example, Bohemian Rhapsody, we could say, hey, the lyrics are very different from the lyrics of other previous songs of uh, the Queens or other songs of contemporaries of the Queens. So there is something that is objective. We can really see from the way the text was written from the music and how the music changes across the, uh, the song. We can look at the length. It was different from what was the average song of the Queens and other composers at that time. But then, so this is one perspective, which is more the objective one. But then there is also a very strong subjective experience of novelty. Now it is not only what is, but what we perceive and evaluate as such. So to give an example, when a lot of critics listened for the first time to the Bohemian Rhapsody song, uh, they thought it was not new. It was actually, I hear some quotes, some people called it, uh, the lyrics are not the stuff of sonnets. This is the Time Magazine. The New York Times said, uh, the songs sound empty, all flesh and calculation. And the Rolling Stone said, it's a brazen hodgepodge. So it's just <laughs> confusion. So we're talking about, of course, there were some concrete facts that could let us know that this was a new song or a different song or a unique song. But there's also the perceived and the, and the personal experience of it that for many people, this was not new. This was either pretentious, so it was fake and artificial, or it was confusing and ambiguous. So they didn't really felt it was new. They didn't perceive it as such. And both of these perspectives are valid. So only when we perceive and recognize something as new, then we are willing to act upon it, for example, uh, we could be through a recognition for a, your innovation and give it a prize or brighten it in you know, positive uh, lenses. Other times, different just means weird. And the weird is criticized or stigmatized or uh, in general punished uh, as you know, many people can experience in their life. But the same idea might actually generate very different responses from different people. So that's why I think that there is not one definition. We need to reconcile these two souls of novelty and innovation. There is a objective one and there is a perceived one and sometimes they don't go uh, hand in hand. In line of what you said, uh, as a researcher, we always experience uh, this thing that if we want to change, I don't know, topic, or we want to change uh, even uh, a research line. This type of inconsistency can be punished by the, the policy makers. Absolutely. So if we, if we look again at these two definitions, right? So one is basically we are saying, what is new? New is something that is different from something that happened in the past. It's the first time that occurred. So, but it's also about you know, personal change. It's the first time I write a book that is going to be a new experience to me it's the first time i write a research project on a subject it's new to me it's the first time i'm cooking this uh, egyptian meal it's new to me right and new means often making a change to compared to what people know me for so in our professional career we're often associated with an identity so uh, for a photographer i'm specialized in landscapes as a researcher i'm specialized in uh, uh, narrow imaging and as a method guy. So because of the identity, this is a way that for people to make sense of who we are and what we do. And any act of innovation, meaning changing and doing something for the first time different from what I've done in the past, 
could actually be seen as inconsistent, meaning I might be judging it as, hey, you're not competent in this area, or may seem that I do not understand anymore who you are and what you do. And this confusion might lead me to think that, hey, uh, this is confusing and thus not appealing and thus not uh, new, but actually just weird. It doesn't occur, of course, for everybody. So if you think about the... Uh, sorry, the, uh, yeah. uh, in line with what you were saying, is that because we are usually like to be in our comfort zone. So we always like stability. We always like to understand what is in front of us. We always like right. to be in, in charge, to control. This is this, this kind of tendency. So a strong, a strong explanation for people uh, potentially having a bias against novelty has been associated with an uncertain, uncertainty avoidance. So the fact that we are experiencing something different and unexpected or surprising or new means that I'm experiencing a certain moment unpredictability and uncertainty. And to a certain extent, and in certain contexts, this is good. If I want to go to the movie theater, you know, and I know already how this is gonna end and all the steps and the next lines and the next words that the actors are gonna say, that's not gonna be you know, an arousing experience. I, I want a minimum amount of difference or, or surprise, but just a little, just enough to make me feel I'm enjoying the movie. But then if I have no clue where this movie is going and it ends abruptly and how this is ended, why, what, what is going on? Like when these movies have become too experimental, too different, we just don't like it because we didn't understand, we didn't figure it out. And we felt a lot of this incongruence and uncertainty that is decreasing our experience. So as customers, as users, often we enjoy just a little bit of innovation and novelty. And that comes also, you know, not only as customers, but also we experience it, experience it often professionally that we might even do something new, but new within a certain trajectory or a, we could see it as a railway. I can move forward. Nobody's saying that we cannot move forward and keep going, but it is in a predictable direction of innovation. The moment we try to go astray, often uh, people will say it's, uh, it's impossible, it's too difficult or it's too ambiguous and uh, goes beyond uh, your identity, but it, that, it's not for everybody. So there has been this very nice experiment that tested art pieces uh, of different, uh, so the same art pieces, that were of different genres and styles. And they said, these four different paintings that are inconsistent have been painted by either Picasso or Braque or an unknown painter that nobody heard before. And the moment people see these acts of inconsistency from Picasso, hey, he's a genius, this is creative. He, look how eclectic he is. When he was a random guy from the street, this is just confusing. This is not aesthetically appealing, we don't like it. So there are, of course, it's not what I'm saying is not a general rule, but cannot be broken. There are some contingencies and dependencies, and often high status people can get along uh, better with change and innovation compared to others. So uh, this this example, this experiment that you just mentioned, uh, make me think about uh, um, the perception of what is uh, an innovator, what, who is not. Uh, but I'm gonna uh, create a little bit of suspense because. Uh, uh, I would like to uh, put another song, uh, which would be uh, Shega de Sadaji, which is a song from uh, Georges Gilberto. And uh, I will explain you after the song why I, this time, choose, I've chosen this uh, song. So see you in a few minutes. Mm -hmm. 
Assim, calado assim Abraços e beijos E carinhos sem ter fim Que é pra acabar com esse negócio De viver longe de mim Não quero mais esse negócio De você viver assim Vamos deixar desse negócio De você viver sem mim Não quero mais esse negócio Okay, so welcome back to the uh, Bold Scientist and the, uh, the Shower. But actually, the authors of the song were uh, Antonio Carlos Jobim and uh, Vinicio de Moraes, identified as the first bossa nova, Brazilian bossa nova uh, songs. He had a lot of uh, uh, difficulty to be appreciated uh, uh, by the audience because of uh, uh, the diversity of what uh, um, of what the, the, the audience was used to listen up to that moment. So we are talking about the samba, the more African rhythm. And this was a bit of a mix of uh, samba and uh, the jazz music. So it was a, a mix that make uh, this uh, the, the genre quite uh, innovative in this regard. Therefore, I, I thought that uh, uh, this particular song, plus I like uh, uh, Bossa Nova, uh, was particularly fitting uh, with, the, uh, with the topic. And in this regard, so I was wondering uh, whether uh, nowadays, uh, who nowadays can be considered as an innovator? So namely, is an innovator uh, uh, an investor or a multimillionaire who is an expert in, te in technology, who is uh, working in uh, Silicon Valley and uh, who kind of entertain uh, his uh, employees with uh, ping pong or PlayStation. Is it that uh, be can be considered uh, uh, the innovator? I think that it's, uh, it is a difficult question uh, to think about, but it, it goes more if we go back to our definitions. So it goes back to the question of why do we see something and a person as innovative or not? So what makes us think that 
you are an original or a genius or somebody that is thinking outside the box. And I think that one metaphor to think about it is that it works a little bit like a glass slipper, you know, like Cinderella that has this the glass shoe and we are trying to see which one of the girls and ladies is fitting within this, uh, within this shape. And to a certain extent, it works in the same way when we think about people. So we have in our mind, maybe we are conscious or not about it, uh, an implicit prototype or model of who an innovator is in a certain context. So if I ask you, uh, and this is usually a question I ask in my class, who do you think is uh, the most innovative uh, inventor, entrepreneur? Usually the question, the answers I get from the students are, you know, Elon Musk and Steve Jobs. And maybe if somebody wants to be original, they're gonna say Leonardo da Vinci. And so far in hundreds of classes I've taught, nobody ever mentioned a woman, right? And this is not because I believe my students have uh, uh, necessarily consciously discriminating, but because there is in their mind a prototype of what are certain characteristics of an innovator that are much more fitting with these people. So we often think now of uh, innovators as entrepreneurs because we think that small, agile companies that are changing the world with technology are more innovative than the moms and pops shops or the uh, large incumbents and old organizations. We think that these entrepreneurs that drive and that lead these organizations uh, are very real innovators and they tend to be people that have very good communication skills. They are very charismatic. Uh, they are in their 20s and 30s. They start from a garage of their house to then conquer the world. So they are usually, you know, even cashless. They are not rich anymore. Uh, we often think of them as, you know, wearing a t-shirt rather than wearing a suit. So we have a lot of cues and signals of what is the right innovator. And some people fit with this glass shoe, with this glass slipper more than others, right? So the fact is, are people wrong? Are people stupid? No, not necessarily. So if we take one of the examples, for example, the one of age, there is some uh, science that says that creativity reaches an apex, a climax at a certain moment. So some people may say it's in the 20s, some people say it's in the 50s. People disagree of exactly when you reach your climax in innovation and creativity, but somewhere it happens, right? So it is true that potentially your age might have an influence on your ability to generate a new idea and be innovative. So maybe when you're younger, you're more likely to be responsive to change. You maybe you know, have less interest in the status quo, you know, maybe you're more willing to challenge it, right? So there may be some factors we associate from cognitive and social point of view to age, but there are others that are symbolic uh, cues that we still are influenced by and are not necessarily informative of your ability to come up with a new idea. And the masculinity part, which is often associated with, you know, being aggressive, with being competitive, with being able to challenge the status quo with, you know, not caring about your family, but just about your idea and project until it works and regardless of failure, be persistent. All this mindset we have of this specific type of entrepreneurs leads us to discount other stories. And not only us as the public, but also the people that have the power to bring these stories to the world. So there so is the, no- the, fu the funny thing is that, uh, so in your description, 
you never mention about the content on that idea. So it means that uh, they just, I mean, people on average, they might just look at the, 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 um, the, the, the surface of the box, the box without Absolutely. not even evaluating uh, the, the innovative aspect of the idea per se. Absolutely. So I think that there is one fascinating research that was conducted in, uh, uh, by Jack Gonzalo. Uh, and basically what he did was to uh, test whether uh, narcissists, so people that have a high self-conception of themselves, would be more creative than others. And what we saw is that the ideas, when they were blind reviewed, people had no clue who was the innovator, the creator, were average, no better nor worse than the others. But the moment they were allowed to present them and the reviewers and evaluators were not blind anymore, they looked more creative than the others. And the idea is that we were, uh, the evaluators were swayed by certain cues about the enthusiasm, the confidence, which then we use often as a cue for uh, competence. So the confidence part and how you believe in your own idea is often used as a cue that this idea is good or not. But it's in fact just a representation of how much I believe in this idea. And often people that have a high self-conception tend to project this also in their ideas. So if I'm really smart and really good, my ideas should be you know, of equal standard. So there is a bias, if we want to call it that way, in the way we evaluate people that can lead us, of course, to create a, a discrepancy between the, I don't like to call it true creativity, but some more factual in the sense that these ideas were not more original or unique or rare than the ideas of people that uh, didn't have such a high self-conception and self-regard. So what is there the difference between uh, who is able to, 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 to sell a, an idea which is not necessarily uh, new and, and the one who actually uh, has an innovative uh, uh, concept? So I think that there is a, so part of it comes, can be, I mean, depending on the perspective we take, of course, uh, it changes the answer we give to a question. So if we take a personality lens, there was, I think, uh, uh, five years ago, a study on twins, and they were looking at what are the personality factors that might lead people to be more or less creative. And they had a very different way of measuring creativity. One was through a standardized test where people had to have little quits or little uh, questions where they had to think about different solutions to a problem. And another one was a video recorded uh, evaluation. So they had to make a video and experts will evaluate this video. And then the third one was through friends and families and people that knew this person, right? So they saw that there are some components of creativity, of personality that are connected through all these different measures. So if you're open to experience, for example, if you're a good, if you're a person that is interested in new ideas in trying new things, you, these people showed a more stronger propensity to creativity across the, the board. But other personality types, for example, extraversion, people that love to chat and talk about what they think and you know, meeting new people, they were strongly related to creativity in the, personal subjective evaluations of the experts and the friends and family and so on and so forth. Uh, so what I'm saying is that there is a strong component in evaluating innovation that comes also from my ability 
to bring it to the world, which is not, I'm not saying that this is a bias necessarily. So there is this beautiful story and it's a book that I would recommend to anybody to read, which is a short history of nearly everything, which is a short history of science and how scientific ideas were sometimes struggled to uh, get out to the world. And there was this beautiful story of a, of a scientist, of a geologist, that wrote this book that was unreadable. Nobody could even understand what he wanted to say. But then he had the luck of having a very, very good friend that when he died, decided to give an ever shot to his theories and write them down in understandable and legible English. And because of his exercise, which took years, his theories become extremely popular and seminal in, uh, in, in the field of geology, meaning that it's not, I'm not taking down or uh, you know, undermining the importance of communication, but to understand that communication is only one aspect in bridging yeah. the novelty that is created to the novelty that is perceived. And often, however, we attribute it as the creator and the innovator, although maybe the idea is originating somewhere else. Yeah, so in this, in this uh, uh, regard, of course, there is a spectrum, right? So there will be the, the very good uh, extroverted uh, communicator, and then there will be, as you uh, already mentioned, the one who has innovative uh, idea, but uh, it's not able to communicate them, right? Or doesn't want to communicate them, because yeah, a lot of people don't really even care to share it through the world. So there are very sorry stories of these fantastic writers that... Uh, never thought of themselves as, you know, accomplished writers. So they had all their poems and books and novels that were just stored in a drawer and left there forever until some people luckily found them and decided to publish them. But I'm sure that there are thousands of beautiful stories that have never been discovered simply because we didn't want to share them or we didn't believe uh, they were worth sharing. So, so it is, of course, yeah. No, uh, yeah, exactly uh, in line with what you were saying. Uh, is, is there in this spectrum, those people uh, or those great innovators that uh, actually are so, um, uh, are so perfection, perfectionistic uh, and they are so critic uh, about themselves that uh, they probably struggle to communicate or even uh, to think about themselves as innovators. Is there also this, this, this other category, which are probably uh, the one that we, we will never hear about or that we kind of uh, manage with difficulty to hear? Of course. So I think that there is, so one clear piece of evidence is that the degree to which you think uh, you're creative has a strong influence on your creativity performance, right? And I think that also this has potentially an effect on the type of task and jobs you aspire to. So the moment you think of yourself and your ideas as unoriginal or uninteresting, and often it comes from, uh, how to say, there are some uh, also psychological reasons. Maybe you are depressed. Uh, there were like, uh, how do you say, if we think about the romanticist, period of literature where there was a lot of uh, uh, introspection and a lot of uh, uh, poems that were bringing out these uh, more darker uh, or negative thoughts. I would say that potentially is also a mixture of your personality and the context and how much it is embracing uh, this view of yourself. So uh, in a context where you might not be 
stimulated to bring them out or these different type of thoughts are not accepted. Then you're much more likely to keep them for yourself or see them with the eyes of your audience and say, hey, this is not good because that's what people are thinking is good right now. Seems I'm in, in interior internalizing these different views. I'm criticizing them. But if a word changes, potentially I might change the view of my ideas. But this self-view is not, is not you know, harmless. Over time, it's going to lead me to prefer certain tasks to compare to others, certain jobs to compare to others. So it might be that we are not cultivating our talent. Yeah. We're not cultivating our possibility to become creative. Yeah. And we become a boring researchers simply because we uh, are afraid or don't believe in our more different uh, original ideas. And indeed, we're going to talk about uh, in a few minutes after the next song about what can we do and what uh, policy makers can do in order to improve this this difference between uh, what is perceived as innovative what is really uh, innovative um, and uh, uh, therefore uh, I will leave you with the next song that is uh, Alleluia uh, but not the original uh, Alleluia uh, by Cohen but uh, the remake of Jeff Buckley <sighs>
Maybe I've been here before I've seen this room and I've walked this floor You know, I used to live alone before I knew you And I've seen your flag on the marble arch And love is not a victory march It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah Hallelujah time when you let me know what's really going on below but now you never show that to me do you but remember when I moved in you and the holy dove was moving too and every breath we drew is hallelujah hallelujah Okay, uh, so I hope we you didn't get too much depressed by the song. It was not our goal. That is very important for me to say that. Uh, but actually, it was functional because uh, uh, honestly, Davide uh, came up with uh, with the idea of uh, uh, putting this beautiful song. Uh, originated by Leonard Cohen. Uh, what was the reason? What the, was the rationale there uh, to propose uh, this song with regard to what we have been uh, said so far? I came to hear for the first time the story of this song on a podcast of Malcolm Gladwell, uh, who's a very influential thinker and speaker about also creativity and innovation. And I found it so surprising that one of the most you know, famous and moving songs was initially, when it was first released, uh, actually perceived a bit as turgid and didn't make uh, any impression on the people. It took coin, uh, they say, over five years of iterations, of changing the lyrics, of changing the song before deciding to bring it out to the world. And still, uh, it was not. Uh, it, it was not accepted in the sense that people didn't, uh, didn't remember it, it was not memorable. It took one cover and then a cover of that cover of Jeff Buckley to bring out all the emotions and all the power of this song. And now we probably listen too many times and everywhere, it's, but every time I listen, it is still really moving and I feel yeah. what happened there. And it's, we're talking about uh, one of the most famous song of writers of the, you know, the last century. But but every time he was working on this song, every time he was going through an iteration, he was unsatisfied. Uh, he was not able to really bring out uh, the soul of the song. And I think when uh, when I 
thought about this example. I thought about a lot of times what happens to our daily life when we think about our idea and our work and we keep changing small details and then going back to what we did before and we keep dissatisfied and we keep working on, a, on something without ever showing it to anybody, without ever bringing it to you know, the light of the day simply because we are the harshest critic of our own work. And it's not only because we are a perfectionist, sometimes it's because we are not confident, sometimes yeah. it's because we simply have a standard that is not achievable for that specific moment at that specific time. Uh, and we are simply postponing a moment of a, uh, it's not the, it's, let's call it a moment of social truth. It's like, am I the only one thinking about it? And sometimes it might be, you know, that I'm the, worst audience for my own idea. Maybe I don't, I, my idea doesn't deserve me as an evaluator. And the time that this song was able to find the right uh, ears, but to find the right, uh, the right interpreter as well, that could make it then uh, communicate to the world. That was the moment uh, it clicked, but it's a beautiful story of again, how such a famous original song is the one, the one we know is actually not original. It's just a cover of a cover. It's yeah. uh, as far away it was from being the first time and the first iteration and the first production of something new. Uh, so I find it a beautiful story of, uh, of how and our role in, uh, in bringing innovation forth. So I think you perfectly described what, uh, an, in, what an innovative idea is and uh, what, what is perceived sometimes sometime uh, as, as an innovative idea and uh, what, what are the differences between uh, innovators or what, once again, is perceived as an innovator. Um, and we understood also that uh, we as an audience and we as a innovators uh, can do a lot to kind of change our mindset to make, uh, to help and promote uh, innovators and innovative ideas. In this, in, this, in this line, this context, what actually we can do in our daily life? What, what would you advise a policymaker to, uh, to promote innovative ideas, to promote the... the uh, the born of new innovators. So to understand what we can do about it, I think we need to go back to think what innovation means to us. And often we think of innovation as a moment of genesis, of creation. It's about having a new idea. It's about having the right idea. We think a lot about, and this is in our common language. We think about brainstorming. We think about the light bulb as the moment of epiphany. But this is one way of looking at innovation. If we change our perspective and we think innovation is what is perceived as new and valuable from some people, then we stop for a moment of thinking whether this is the, you know, how to get the right idea, but it's what is the right audience for my idea? Who are the people that can benefit from this suggestion, from this solution? It's changing from thinking about, hey, you have to think outside the box, that would be a recommendation to, hey, find the right box for your idea. And changing the perspective, thinking about how to make your idea be seen new is not saying, hey, it doesn't matter, any idea can be new. No, I'm just saying that often, however, innovation is more a work of import-export, finding something that is very common in a context to something that is absolutely unknown in another. 
So the moment where economists and management scholars found and discovered psychology and biases, it was a moment for revolution of a revolution for them, but it was something that psychologists probably knew for a long time. And now a lot of people are jumping on these new possibilities and new connections, but the role of innovators sometimes, and for yourself as well, is to think about who should I speak to? And if you receive a no, it's not that my idea is crap, but potentially the connection between your idea and the audience was the wrong one. And you should go through multiple iterations. That's why it's so important to bring your ideas out earlier, because you can go through multiple times and multiple iterations to find the right fit between your idea and the audience that you have in front. Uh, so I think that it would be one suggestion I could give to, to people. For policymakers, it is difficult in the sense it's... Uh, David, in, in terms of a policymaker, um, uh, I remember in your talk, uh, you have been uh, talking about uh, uh, that, that usually the policymaker, the one that has to judge an innovative idea is not probably, as, doesn't have the proper characteristic or feature to, uh, to judge that idea as uh, of innovative, because it's probably more, does, does care more about profit or does care more about uh, other aspect of, uh, of, uh, um, of that particular enterprise. So right. probably they have to be chosen also differently. Exactly. So if we again change the perspective, a way to promote innovation is not by finding the new innovators, the new inventors, the new ideas, but to find the new evaluators, the new critics, the new audiences. So who are the people that will judge? Who are the people that will decide and allocate resources? Potentially a way to stimulate innovation is to change, radically change the system where we assign the decision-making role. So there's interesting research that shows that people that become and get the role of decision makers. So you are tasked every day with examining plans and business plans and business models and making decisions, creates a mindset that is not uh, instrumental to novelty because novelty and creating novelty is sometimes finding a new criterion. Uh, it's funny, uh, redefining what matters in a certain context while the deciding and evaluating, you go through these endless checklists and guidelines and you have to find what idea is the optimal one given the current dimensions. But it's the moment where you keep with these frameworks, you're gonna escape, you're gonna miss those ideas that are redefining the framework. So a suggestion for policymakers is often that the best evaluators are people that are also engaged professionally as creators. So that is a system that with all the difficulties, with all the issues, but the peer review system is an example of when a person has to take the role of creating and evaluating. And by jumping between these two different roles, you have to remain accustomed with both mindsets, understanding what is rigorous science, what is novel science, what is important science, but also going through the hurdles of creating and developing and advancing new projects. And this combination uh, of creators as evaluators seem to be the most promising at least in getting new ideas forth and having innovations uh, more accepted, at least in, in the context of organizations. Absolutely, it would make a lot of sense. And with that, unfortunately, we are really at the end of the show. 
So please let me thank a lot for all your clarity, your uh, kindness in accepting uh, my invitation. And I mean, also on behalf of uh, Radio on the Italian and Stats FM, I thank you a lot. And I really hope you to be uh, my guest again uh, in a few months because we still have a lot of things uh, thing to talk about. Thank you a lot, Davide. It was a lot of fun and thanks everybody for listening. All right, so, um, and also good night to everybody. I will leave you with uh, uh, a song of uh, um, Key Jarrett, an innovative uh, pianist in this uh, uh, regard, because uh, he started to uh, make concert improvising from the beginning to the end. A mixture of uh, uh, jazz and classical uh, music. So uh, I hope you will enjoy. Good night to everyone and to uh, Davide. Bye. Ciao. Ciao.